Bienvenuti al episodio de la edición del 27 de mayo de The Way It Is y el podcast oficial de Bobby Galinsky. Y bienvenuti al Vunque Tusia. Welcome to episode 10, the May 27th edition of The Way It Is official Bobby Galinsky podcast. And welcome to wherever you are. For those of you that are loyal listeners, you're probably thinking, wow, he has been practicing that Italian. And I have. And actually what I'm hoping is that somebody in Italy just wanders on this podcast by happenstance and the lead-in is in Italian. I think, oh my God, it is an Italian podcast. I have found the best thing ever. Well, that's all they're going to get for today. But the welcome to wherever you are in both Italian and English, it's just a little bit of salt and pepper on one of the things we're going to talk about today. And that is uh, because that was the eighth album title from the band In Excess, whose lead singer Michael Hudgens died 23 years ago. And 23 years later, his estate's still churning out zillions. He had about $70 million in assets when he died. But yet when he died, miraculously, he had nothing. In fact, his credit card for a dinner with his father was declined the night he died before he went to the hotel in Double Bay, Sydney, New South Wales, where he eventually died or committed suicide. We'll talk a bit about that. It's a very interesting story, one that I have a personal connection to. Because um, he killed himself in a room that my folks stayed in some years later when they came to visit me. Those two were not connected, and no, it wasn't my father's belt. Anyway, some of the other things we're going to be talking about in the truth, justice, and not just American way today is, have you heard of Jack Barth? You've never heard of Jack Barth? Famous screenwriter? Oh, wait, he didn't get the credit. How many of you have heard of The Beatles? You've heard of The Beatles. Have you heard of the movie Yesterday? Have you seen the movie Yesterday? We're going to tell you about a flagrant ripoff there, too. Um, and all of this, folks, for those of you that are legal eagles or just the type of people out there that are just looking to stir up trouble, are alleged facts, alleged stories. And uh, we will have all of our disclaimers in there. Just reading the facts so you can interpret them the way you like. And then you can go, hmm, that's interesting. I believe that. Or I don't believe that. But that's okay. And... Wishing all of you in the United States, our listeners, a happy Memorial Day. You had this last weekend. Uh, a friend of mine here, Frank Cahill, who has served in the forces here, always used to say, freedom isn't free. Someone had to pay for it. And I don't know if that's his quote, but uh, I do attribute it to him. And great respect to those of you who serve in the military, have served, and immense respect to those who gave their lives so that we can all be free to do what we want, and even talk about what I want to talk about on this podcast. That's a tenet of freedom. And for those of you in the U.S., I'd like to talk about a great quote from Dan Bongino. Also, I listen to him a lot, uh, his podcast. He's on Twitter. He's on Parler. Follow him anywhere. The states are not united anymore. There are two Americas right now. There's a free America, which is opening up and encouraging its citizens to safely rebuild their lives and businesses. And there's an America being ruthlessly bankrupted and harassed by tyrannical 
politician overlords. We're going to get into that a little bit later, just foreshadowing what's going on here. And we're going to talk about, I think, one of the most amazing women, one of the most amazing people I've listened to in the last several months, Melanie Phillips. She uh, was a former writer at The Guardian, and uh, she left, and she has a 45-minute YouTube video called Why I Left the Left. She's probably about 60 years old. She's Jewish. She's a brilliant writer, and and she's white, and uh, that's kind of her, her background. So now you can go, oh, white, privileged, Jewish woman. But um, she just really lays it out on what's going on in the world from a very, very educated point of view. Mind-blowing. And we're going to talk about Jack Barth. Have you heard of Jack Barth? No. And you probably never will, except for this podcast. But he's the guy that wrote the film Yesterday. Yesterday, yesterday. No, Yesterday was written by Richard Curtis. That's the Beatles movie, or the guy that was the only person who knew about the Beatles. That's what you think. And we're going to dissect that a bit, uh, both as a fan and myself as a writer and knowing what happens behind closed doors in Hollywood. And it's not all good. Uh, we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about Obamagate later on. This, oh my God, this is just rivers of pleasure flowing over me right now as all of these reveals and all of these documents are being released and declassified. And we are going to just revel in this for months and months to come. We uh, will talk about flattening the curve. Not the Wuhan curve, but the curve a lot of you had put on eating and drinking the last two months with this stupid lockdown. And as promised last week, a fabulous, unbelievable Nicolas Cage story. One of the best Hollywood stories ever of excess. Uh, what else will we touch on? Another uh, shout out to our left-handed listeners. We've got some more news for left-handers. Um, so sad for you. And if you've ever been to L.A., I'm sure you've spent time in Westwood. And if you've spent time in Westwood, you've probably been the Stan's Donuts. Stan's Donuts is gone, baby, gone. Gone forever. A victim of the Wu flu. One of the most iconic, groovy places on the planet. Whether you were Brad Pitt or whether you were a panhandler, whether you were homeless, whether you were, you know, you know, a billionaire, Stan's Donuts. And we're going to talk about the, the Son of God. Not Jesus, but someone who's more famous than Jesus. And all kinds of good things. But you're probably thinking, wow, Bobby, that's all nice. It's episode 10. You made it. If you make it to episode 10, you've you made it past 99% of most podcasts, and you'll probably be here forever. Yes, yes, thank you. I have and I will, unless I get bored with this. I could get bored. I've got the attention span of a gnat. Um, I was even going to do some of the, oh, you know, lay down tracks and bits earlier in the week. But as I like to say in a family podcast, I just couldn't be fucked. So I'm kind of all jamming it in here, rushing to, to do it right. And there'll be a few missteps and things like that. But you get the real me. Can you see the real me? But as I said, you're not interested in that. You want to know 
What really happened on this day in 1679? Well, habeas corpus act, which strengthened the person's right to challenge unlawful arrest and imprisonment, passed in England. Very important. Something the Obama administration was unable to get their head around. And perhaps you're wondering in 1905, on a Thursday, when the Japanese fleet destroyed the Russian East Sea Fleet in the Battle of Tsushima, which was the only decisive clash between modern steel battleships in history. Well, what that makes me think of is Battleship. I used to love playing Battleship. And playing Battleship, after about 20 shots of tequila, is fantastic. You feel like a dark overlord, and all you want to do is just take over places. I can see why people want to be generals and um, the appeal of being a dictator and stuff like that, just blowing the shit out of stuff, taking over countries, enslaving people. I was born in the wrong time. And on this day in 1963, Jomo Kenyatta was elected first prime minister of, of Kenya. And in 2006, yes, I'm reading these off the net, but only the ones that interest me. An earthquake struck Java, Indonesia, killing 6,600 people. I'm not a big fan of Indonesia, so I really don't care about that. I do love humanity. But when, you know, volcanoes and earthquakes, like when there's ever there's a giant earthquake in Pakistan, I chuckle. And then I kind of feel bad because you see on the news, you know, children and stuff like that. But at first, if it's a country that I've got the shits with, I usually chuckle. I actually have a list of countries that I wish ma massive earthquakes and disasters on, which I'll, uh, I'll post in the show notes sometime. It's not as long as the list of people I wish these things on. But uh, you know my sign-off at the end of the show. I really don't mean it much. Oh, just get that anger out. It's been an angry week been an angry week. We're not quite unlocked down yet. The restaurants here in Victoria finally, finally opened June 1st. No, not even this Sunday. Got to wait till Monday. So naturally, my wife and I booked up about, you know, 10 different restaurants so that we can support the locals. And, you know, my birthday's coming up. I know some of you marked it early. You've only got about 34 shopping days left, 1st of July. So, um, Get those credit cards out. In 1977, on this day, the Sex Pistols released God Save the Queen. I love that song. Love the Sex Pistols. There's not much that really happened in music other than that. In sport, there's a big soccer match on this day in 1961. I'm not even going to say who it was and who won because I'm not really a fan of soccer. Growing up in the U.S., Soccer just didn't exist. Anyone that says that they're my age that they played soccer is a, is a liar. It was only in the 90s when the World Cup came to California did soccer get on the map. And I know, you know, now kids play it all the time and it's the world sport and everything. And possibly one of the best documentaries I've ever seen, ever seen, is the Maradona documentary, Hand of God, that came out last year and I actually saw it on the airplane saw it on the airplane on the way back from London and oh just actually cried like a baby I, I sob at all emotional films and um, I just generally I'll be down the street and I'll break out crying if something makes me sad yes it's that kind of person that 
is sad on the inside, but not on the outside. I may seem hard and cold and mean to you when I say I wish earthquakes on Pakistan, but that's the duality of man. But this Maradona documentary, unbelievable, unbelievable, the things that this guy went through. And uh, you have got to see it. Absolutely got to see it. And I think I cried a lot too because on the plane, after about five or six single malt scotches, I think the altitude gets to me too. I cry at everything. I even cry at Seinfeld. In fact, you should cry at Seinfeld, the new Netflix special. It's pretty lame. He just doesn't do it for me anymore. And I was one of the biggest Seinfeld devotees ever. But the new Netflix special, I chuckled. And it's clever. And it's smart. But it's um, the zeitgeist of Jerry Seinfeld is no more. Is no more. I actually saw him in Sioux City years ago. My my brother scored tickets and we all went down to the Orpheum Theater and Seinfeld played there. Seinfeld in Sioux City, um, which in a satirical way would probably mean that's the end of anyone's career, but actually was kind of the rekindling of his career. And I was quite proud to be there in the audience and see him very close up in a, such a beautiful theater of the CMN, and he was fantastic. But time's up, time's up. All right, so let's get into it. How's everyone's week been? We're just climbing in the charts, one of the top podcasts for climbing in the charts. Very excited about that. Absolutely strokes my ego. And thank you for everyone with all your kind notes and stuff like that. Thank you for the people that have been subscribing. Um, It is free, for Christ's sake. There's no reason not to subscribe. Oh, I don't want another email in my inbox. Well, hello. Let me be that email in your inbox. All you have to do is just listen later. Or you can delete me. Just don't ever delete me and send me a screenshot of that. I will mess you up for life. But uh, it's a free country. You can do whatever you like. And by the way, I think I flagged this Jack Barth thing twice already. So no, I haven't lost my mind, but that's kind of the free form of all this. I do lay out the show and the uh, outline of what I'm going to talk about, but I get so excited and it's kind of free form and just kind of random that that can happen. So my question to myself is, am I going to go back and delete that and spice it together and try and make it more synchronous? No. Because I'm just too lazy. It'll be like one of those little flaws in a VVS-1 giant diamond the size of a Hope Diamond. So you can go, wow, almost fucking perfect. Except he mentioned that Jack Barth story. He flagged it twice. Actually, three times now, So I'm talking about it again. So anyway, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk about Melanie Phillips. Melanie Phillips is... One of the strongest thinkers today. And you know that I do like to have little segments in Iowa and Colorado and the U.S. and the U.K. and Europe and places I've lived and things that I like to wear and things I like to drink and things like that. And usually talk about Judaism a little bit because I am Jewish. And though I haven't suffered any massive anti-Semitism, I do have a very, very large concern with the growth 
of anti-Semitism in the world today. And in fact, it's absolutely rife. It went away for a long time, and it's come back with a vengeance. In fact, you know, people like Jeremy Corbyn just embodied the fact that it was okay, and he came within a whisper of being Prime Minister of England, which is pretty fucking scary, I gotta say. But Melanie Griffith dissects it in such a way and why the left not only often embraces it, but denies even being part of it, is that the the strange venom that comes from anti-Semitism that people absolutely hate the Jews and think of them as vermin, that they must be destroyed, Israel must be destroyed, all Jews must be destroyed right off the face of the earth, just like we're pests and roaches. And some of us are, like in all races, in all colors, all creeds, all religions. We've got our, we've got our bad people. Although I wish Jeffrey Epstein was here to talk about it. But on the other hand, although we're treated by anti-Semites as vermin and must be destroyed, on the other hand, they elevate it and they elevate us to this huge status that we are the all-powerful and we control the world. We control the world. We control the media. There were no Jews in the Twin Towers on 9-11 because we all had secret messages and, and left the buildings. I talked about that in an earlier podcast, that uh, myth propagated by the, the Muslim world, the uneducated Muslim world, not all. Um, just remember, a, a moderate Muslim is the one who is unarmed. And uh, so this amazing dichotomy that we're vermin, but yet we control the world. So it makes absolutely no sense. And very few people can explain it or articulate it the way she does. So I really urge you to listen to her interview on YouTube. Just Google Melanie Phillips, Why I Left the Left, and how the Guardian newspaper absolutely just made her a non-person and tried to destroy her uh, as she literally had to leave the building like Elvis. She's a very powerful thinker on all levels, not just Judaism or anti-Semitism or journalism or anything like that. And it's just so exciting to hear a new thinker who doesn't just postulate and rant like I do and can explain himself or herself and back it up and have you think. So that just opens your mind up to think. Most people would rather do anything than think. Most people spend more time planning a holiday that they can't take now because of the woo flu, then having to think. They just avoid it, as most voters can uh, demonstrate. And speaking of the woo flu, please don't call it COVID and COVID-19. And people like Kamala Harris, the absolute moron from California, former prosecutor, boy, I would have hated been on the wrong side of her um, and in jail for 106 years and two months for smoking a joint. But she's trying to introduce a bill that would make it a hate crime to call it the Wu flu or the Wuhan flu. It's from China, Kamala. It's from Wuhan province. That's why it's called the Wuhan flu. Like the Lyme disease is from Lyme, Connecticut. And, you know, I just could go on, just go on. You know, like Ebola from the Ebola River area. West Nile virus, where did that come from? Anyway, so please, don't just call it COVID. Not to my face. 
Oh, and don't cough in my face either. Now, I've got to tell you this Nicolas Cage story. I would hope that most of you have seen a Nicolas Cage film that you like or love. A lot of people say, oh, he makes the worst films in the world. Nicolas Cage has a problem in that he does not have the word no in his vocabulary. He's never said no to a film, I'm sure. His agent says, Nicholas, what about this one? Okay, as long as I can take my face off. <laughs> I love Nicolas Cage because Leaving Las Vegas is one of the most amazing portrayals in history. And he won the Academy Award for it. And Face Off, and Wild at Heart, and a million things. He's made some absolute stinkers. He just acts and acts and acts and acts. He loves act. He loves to work. It's also because he has a possession problem. He buys everything. doesn't have a drug problem that anybody knows. It doesn't have an alcohol problem that anybody knows. He has a possession problem. Like J. Paul Getty used to say, I have an art problem. I buy everything I see. Anyway, I'm telling this story secondhand from a person who was with it firsthand. So I wasn't there. It is an alleged true story, but I've known this fellow for years and uh, he, he just wouldn't make up a fake story. The story comes from one of the producers on Nicolas Cage's film, Bangkok Dangerous, which isn't a bad film at all, actually, that was shot in Thailand. And uh, one of the producers, Jason Schumann, told me the story. Jason is an Academy Award nominee from the film Lone Survivor and had the opportunity to work with him in development on a uh, major project of mine and a couple of other uh, projects in development. But Jason tells a story that when they shot Bangkok Dangerous, it was in Thailand. And the time of the shoot that it came into monsoon season, as he shares. And anyway, the shoot was just horrific. And it rained every day. And everything was late. And everything that could go wrong went wrong. It's actually a pretty good film, though. I liked it. But anyway, at the end of the, at the end of the shoot, as we're told, you've got all the crew, and they're just dying to leave Thailand and go home. And they're all packed on this plane, on the tarmac, and it's quite hot, and it's humid, and as most airline passengers will tell you, sometimes they just shut the air conditioning off, and the plane is piping hot, and they're just waiting. And what they're waiting for, who they're waiting for, is Nicolas Cage, the star of the film, who's very, very late, very, very late. Anyway, Lo and behold, someone comes to the front of the plane with a megaphone or something, and everyone has to deplane and get off on the tarmac. So all the crew and, you know, everyone's that worked on this film, that's just dying to get home. They're going, oh, Jesus Christ, what's going on now? And they deplane, and they're standing on the tarmac, and I think it's bucketing rain, and it's hot, and it's humid. And, you know, what's going on? And off in the distance, off in the distance, this large, large truck starts pulling up towards the tarmac, towards a loading area. And out of the front of the truck, someone gets out and Nicolas Cage gets out. And it turns out to be his assistant. I hope I'm telling this story correctly because he told me this years ago and I've kept this story for a special occasion like this and dinner parties. But lo and behold, she explains, sorry that we're late but all of you are going to have to take later flights. And the reason is, is that in that giant truck that is on the tarmac, 
is something that Nicholas has purchased. Nicholas has been up in the wilds of the mountains or somewhere of Thailand and found this giant, like 50,000-pound Buddha covered in gold, some kind of statue or something like that. And it's coming home with him. In fact, he cannot travel without this Buddha. It has to come home with him. It's that, that special, and he's superstitiously bound to it. So because of weight limits on planes, everyone has to deplane and take a later flight the next day or whatever. And this flight is just going to be Nick and the Buddha. Nick and the Buddha. And that is just Hollywood at its best. That is star privilege. Now, I hope to baby Jesus that that's a true story, and I hope I related it right, but that's the way I remember it. And if it's not true, it's still possibly the greatest story that should be true. But I'm about 99.94% sure that that is the story that I heard, and I just love it. I just love it. I can just see Nicholas Cage saying, the Buddha has got to go home with me. Anyway, feast your ears on that one, bitches. I hope it's true. Anyway, going from something that's quite funny to something that's dark and sad. Dark and sad. Michael Hutchins. Michael Hutchins died in 1997 at the age of 37. And... He should have had about $70 million, you know, at the low end, $20 million, people are told. But uh, he had like $500, according to the elusive accountant stroke attorney who allegedly ripped off everything. And it's a story that's been around a while, and I tried very, very hard to make a film about this, and um, it's still out there with a couple of folks in development from a script that I wrote. But uh, I was in a restaurant bar in Elwood, which is a Melbourne suburb, and I was with uh, a young lady who was an actress who was a client of mine, and she just happened to ask me, just out of the blue, if you, if money was no object, you could do any film in the world, what film would you do? And you know I'm big on goals and dreams because it was something that I was pushing on her to make a list so that I could help her get towards her goals, one of my coaching clients. I said, oh, well, uh, there's really two. I would love to remake To Kill a Mockingbird in a modern day mode. So it's not, uh, you know, in the South with, uh, you know, white trash and a, a black guy poorly accused wrongly accused, and, you know, the Atticus Finch, I would update it and have it, like, maybe in a major city, and maybe it's a, a, a Muslim guy accused of murder and a Jewish attorney or, or something. Anyway, just update it. I, I just love To Kill a Mockingbird. And it's one of the best screenplays ever, ever. It's my uh, holy grail. And the other thing I like to do is I'd like to make a biography, a biopic, on Michael Hutchins. Like his life was amazing, unbelievable star, uh, an amazing, amazing presence, and absolutely um, Shakespearean tragedy on how everything was ripped off from him. Everything, every penny, 
and he ultimately ended his own life, whether accidentally or on purpose, in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Double Bay. There had been a myriad of attempts, uh, mostly futile, of other people to try and do it, all pushed off, all blocked from getting music rights and life rights and things like that. Um, Channel 7 Network here in Australia did a show, The Last Rock Star, which was rubbish and uh, like most things Channel 7 does, devoid of fact and uh, just blatantly bad. Um, Posh-looking, slick, blatantly bad. And also they had a, a mini-series um, in excess, which was absolute rubbish also. It's just, just you know, cross between Neighbors and Home and Away and Coronation Street and every bad kind of soap opera you could have. But each one had little points in it. There were some good portrayals in the TV series. And in the Channel 7 special, it did have the elusive Colin Diamond. The um, If there's a scamster, allegedly, this guy is the king of scamsters, um, as we'll talk about. And there's even a film that came out this last year um, called Mystifog, which uh, has a lot of great footage, and it was done by the videographer that did some of In Excess's videos and a longtime friend. And it's not a bad film. It's an interesting film and there's some great footage in there. And it talks about him when he got punched and knocked out and he lost his sense of smell and, you know, kind of lost his shit after that. But nothing really touches on the real truth of how he was ripped off and the band didn't come to help him. And this 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 guy was just absolutely abandoned by everyone from the top down to the bottom. And just nobody seems to want to attack that. And that is the story. That is the big tragedy of this that really needs to be addressed. And back in 2005, I read an amazing article in The Age, back when The Age was relevant, by one of Australia's top writers, a Walkley Award winner. It's like the, the Pulitzer Prize of Australia, Kate McClymont. Kate McClymont is one of the top journalists. She gets to the heart of the story. She's fearless. She's a top writer, and she did an expose on where all the Michael Hutchins money had gone that inspired me. Um, and she wrote an article on the $20 million mystery of the disappearing Hutchins estate. So I kind of wanted to do that. I more than kind of wanted to do that. So the actress said, I know someone that um, knows Michael Hutchins's half-sister. I go, really? Tina Hutchins? I go, knows her? She says, yeah. Uh, knows her very, very well, spent years, um, is in the music industry, stuff like that. So anyway, she introduced me to this guy, and we had some chats, and to make a long story short, uh, embarked down on the road of trying to make this film. And at that time, uh, Michael's half-sister, Tina Hutchins, had published a book called Just a Man that was a fantastic book from an insider's point of view, what happened in the family, and contacted her and we secured an option, the rights to the book at the time. And I started off on the script. And, 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 to make a long story short, we were delving into the dark side of everything that happened. And in Kate McClymont's story, she unveils people such as Andrew Young, um, Tony Alford, Gordon Fisher, all barristers and tax accountants, people that were really allegedly found on the bottom of the harbor as far as, you know, reliability and integrity. Um, just, you'd wonder, how did Michael Hutchins 
wind up with these people. And most importantly, uh, a Hong Kong accountant named Andrew Paul and the king of it all, Colin Diamond and his crazy brother, Stevie, who Colin is the elusive man of mystery and allegedly is the one that engineered everything, uh, moved all the monies offshore, started trusts. And it was under the guise of Michael not wanting his quote-unquote greedy family and girlfriends or wives or anything like that, taking the money. Now, people, rock stars, celebrities, do set up trusts to protect themselves. But rarely does it fall into a situation where the dark dark overlord lawyer uh, or accountant makes himself the beneficiary and controls everything so that nobody from the family or even the late star himself could have made changes. And at the end of the day, uh, Ms. McClymouth said it was about $20 million that disappeared. It's probably closer to $70 million over time with all the royalties and new royalties that were generated from the Channel 7 series and uh, film and other things. And um, even the movie that came out, Mystified, that would have churned up some sales and things like that. But, you know, it's not just an opinion, opinion piece. He had like $20 million in cash that disappeared. He had a development in Southport near the Gold Coast that had been sold for $8 million, that had been bought for $1.3 million. Um, that turned out mysteriously not to be his. Um, his trust lent money to Polly Yates. He had a bowling alley in Queensland that, oh, wait, that's not yours either anymore since you're dead. It uh, is in a company whose directors were Mr. Alfred and Mr. Diamond. And... Uh, you know, there was a Gold Coast Isle of Capri property that was purchased for a million and had a Bentley with it. Oh, oh, wait, that's not owned by him mysteriously either. The French villa where Michael was married when he hosted his sister, I'm sorry, where he hosted his sister Tina's wedding. Oh, that turned out not to be his after his death. All these things were controlled by a British company called League Work and connected to the Leighton Group, and in a release of the Paradise Papers just 24 months ago, where 30 million documents, 30 million documents of everyone from President Trump to President Obama to President Clinton to George Soros to every celebrity, all that were leaked. It showed how all this went to the Bahamas, to trust controlled in the Bahamas, and how the elusive Colin Diamond was not only in control of it all, but the sole beneficiary. All the family got after a legal chase was like $500 and a couple of pictures and not even the ashes. His ashes, Michael's ashes, were split up between people. And in ultimate insult, Tina, the half-sister, was shipped a box that contained a belt, the belt that Michael hung himself with. Now, that project, um, the rights for the book went away. Uh, Tina went her own direction. The The band seemed to be unsupportive on all levels of anything to do with Michael. That was going to be his solo career. And the pursuit of Mr. Diamond and Alfred and everything in the Queensland Supreme Court um, had a small out-of-court settlement, which didn't even cover the court costs. Now, And every time this movie has just about seen the light of day with something, a threat to cease and desist from um, Colin Diamond or his brother Stevie, who who needs a 
a show all to himself. Um, I think he thinks is the ghost of Michael Hutchins. Right down to the manager, um, who was the genius behind the band, um, Chris Murphy, who refused to license any of the music for the film because he didn't like the content of it. It doesn't make him out to look like a pretty good guy. Um, And I think that's where that all comes. But this journey continues, and we shall see where it goes. 23 years later, not a cent. Not a cent. So going from one story that hasn't made it quite to Hollywood yet, or made it to Hollywood and television and all all the wrong versions uh, of B-movies and C-television, is another Hollywood story. Have I told you about Jack Barth? Have you heard about Jack Barth? Well, that's the fourth and fifth time I've mentioned him. And actually, it is no accident, because once this podcast ends, you're probably never going to hear from him again, because he's a screenwriter in his 60s, and he wrote the original story for Yesterday, the movie which was magically written by Richard Curtis, Love Actually, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones Diary, and directed by Danny Boyle, Slumdog Millionaire, Steve Jobs, 28 Days Later. Awesome team. Awesome team. But what happened in this terrible screenwriter's journey, I've been a part of these journeys, so I really feel for this guy, is um, a fellow named Vince Mancini. I hope I pronounced that right. could be Mancini, but I think it's Mancini, like Henry Mancini, the composer, who uh, writes for Uproxx, wrote an amazing story called How One Yesterday Screenwriter's Dream Became Something of a Nightmare um, and wrote that just a few weeks ago. Great story. But what it does is it breaks down all the little things that I'd heard through the industry over the past couple years. But in, in short, Jack Barth had written a film called Cover Version. Now, Cover Version became yesterday because he wrote the treatment in 2012 and in 2013 he gave it to his agent who gave it to a producer. And to make a long story short, when an agent says, oh, you've got Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle who want to do your picture to get that kind of validation, two of the most celebrated filmmakers in the UK wanting to make your screenplay, after you know toiling for years, getting fuck all credit and doing nothing, that's a writer's dream come true. Except it wasn't a dream come true because the trouble started when Barth started accepted what he believed was a lesser credit. In in short, once they say Richard Curtis wants to buy your film and he's going to produce it, um, they said, you've got to have a second credit behind Richard Curtis. Now that's like saying, you didn't create this story. You're going to have to take a lesser credit, and but your film is going to get made. So come on, don't worry about it. You're 62. Nothing's ever happened in your life of note. Swallow this bittersweet pill. Your film's going to get produced, and you know that's all good. And you'll still get to participate in the film and make money and you know hang out and and be famous when it all when it all happens. Because how can these two guys not make a famous film? Well. I could spend days going through this. But what happened through the evolution of the film is Richard Curtis's script suddenly became Richard Curtis's script, even though it came from Jack Barth. Now, as they say, and as many people know, sometimes you think of things and you think you thought of them and they weren't yours. Um, Robin Williams, the comedian, used to steal jokes all the time. I hate to say stole. I mean, he is dead. 
But he would, you know, tell other people's jokes, forget that they were other people's jokes, and he was famous for it. And he generally cut a check to most of his victims so they didn't hold it against him. And that's that's not hearsay, that's that's documented. But sometimes you wake up and you think of something and you think of church. But long story short, there were so many parts of the film that were so identical to what Jack Barth had written that yesterday really was Jack Barth's script, which was adapted by Richard Curtis and made by Danny Boyle. Not a script by Richard Curtis from a story by Jack Barth, which is the way it ended up. And he's not going to get rich from it because the film is never going to go into net profit. Um, famous story about how Coming to America, the Eddie Murphy film, made $367 million on a $20 million budget, but never went in the profit because the accounting of the marketing and all the uh, ancillary expenses exceeded it. Hollywood accounting at its best. The only people that make money are people that make a percentage of the gross, like Sandra Bullock, who made $70 million off the gross of the movie Gravity because she came in at the last second when Angelina Jolie pulled out. Can you imagine Angelina Jolie with George Clooney in Gravity? I can't. But anyway, Bullock came in. She was available. And she said, I'll do it right now because you're all set up to shoot. But I want a percentage of the gross, the first dollar, so that when you go pay $15 at the cinema, she just tears off a little piece of that. She made $70 million off that. Fantastic film. And um, that's how you get rich. First dollar gross. But not Jack Barth you'll never remember again he didn't get a back end only net and it's not going to go into net the film did reasonably well but not great uh very mixed reviews some people love it some people didn't love it um i didn't love it my wife loved it some friends of mine loved it. it's a very nice film it's a very love actually tone but it just had too many misses and i just couldn't get my head around it and i really didn't enjoy the casting that much but i'm going to give it another shot but I just hate it when someone creates something and they don't get the credit for it that they deserve. He got a little bit of credit, but he didn't get the credit that he deserved. And I just wanted you to know that. So if you go see yesterday, it's Jack Barth. And Jack Barth would have gotten harder than Chinese arithmetic when he found out his story was going to be made into a film. But once he accepted secondary credit, the ride went downhill and he wasn't even really invited to the premieres or part of the promotion of the film at all. It was like he was persona non gratis. Um, and I, I, I like Richard Curtis a lot. I think he's a very talented guy. Nothing to take away from him. This is the way it works in Hollywood a lot. But I just don't buy the fact that uh, he said he hadn't read Jack Barth's complete story when he wrote his own script. Um, I don't believe the integrity of that. I hope I haven't depressed you. I hope some of these sad, sad tales haven't depressed you. Let's look at something a little brighter. I promised a little gift for our left-handers out there that we had left-hand special in the first episode. Did you know that William Allen, who designed the Chrysler Building in New York, was left-handed? He was the architect, and the Chrysler Building at 319 meters was the tallest man-made structure at the time when it opened on this day, May 27th, in 1930. Just had to add that one on there. Also, we have found out in the past several several weeks that over 52%, just a shade over 52% of all violent crimes by women 
are from left-handers. And that source is from the LA Times. That is very important to me. And by the way, my wife is left-handed. Ah! Oh, God, no! I've always wanted to scream my, my lungs out on this show. I couldn't do it in early episodes because I thought it might jeopardize things. But now that we're in episode 10, I feel pretty safe to do that. And I am alone in the bunker. She's out. But speaking of family matters, not my family, other families, uh, I did get out on the tennis court the other day for the first time in months and months. My club, Kuyong Lawn Tennis Center, the spiritual home of tennis in Australia, where Yvonne Gulagong is a patron, opened back up just for members, and I played with um, an evil foe, an evil foe. I won't even mention him, but uh, he's a very talented I will mention him. His name is Matt Hopper. He's a very talented guitar player, videographer, and creator. And he's going to be a guest on this show sometime in the next month or two. But um, I played with him because my regular hateful partner, Marcus Middleton, wasn't available because he's not a member. And then I found out, and he's such a good friend. He's my former bank manager, as I mentioned in previous episodes. Former, meaning he can't do me any favors at all. So really, is it even a point having him as a friend? We'll think about that. But I found out that he's really not the Marcus Middleton. He is the 2.0. I found out that his dad's name is Marcus Middleton and actually lives in his neighboring suburb of East Bentley. Now, he's from Wales. <laughs> Wales. What a messed up country, except for Richard Burton and Tom Jones. Wales gave us one of the worst prime ministers we've ever had, Julia Gillard, here. If you're from America or the U.K., Trust me, you got off light. We survived her. But Marcus Middleton Sr. gave birth through his wife to Marcus Middleton Jr., who is my friend. So I don't know if I got the 2.0 version or if I got the shitty version that maybe the apple stopped at the tree and I'm, I've missed out. Maybe his dad is really the guy that I want to be my friend. But uh, I'm going to be looking for him. But then again... What kind of guy names his son after himself? Is that vanity or what? I really want to explore that in a, in a future episode. People who name their children after themselves, is it an homage to carry things on and, and do things better? Or is it just that they're so full of themselves that they just want everyone to be named at him? So if you see an older guy, it's probably an old guy, his name's Marcus Middleton, ask him, are you the Marcus Middleton that named your son after yourself? What's going on there? Now, I do want to touch on my favorite subject just a little bit because we're going to do a whole show on it in a couple of weeks probably, is Obamagate, how the Obama administration from the top down spied on Americans, used FISA warrants, used the FBI and CIA to spy on members of the Trump campaign. Now, whether you like President Trump or not or his campaign, that is so illegal unmasking people like General Flynn um, wiretapping Americans, uh, the, the most illegal things. If this was the table's turn, the media would be freaking the fuck out. But no, you don't hear a thing about it because it ruins their whole narrative because their Russia meddling didn't work out. Their Mueller investigation didn't work out. Nothing's worked out because all of this was 100% rubbish. Whether you love or hate the Trump administration, all of that was 100% rubbish, and I am just absolutely 
orgasming over all these reveals that are coming out. And uh, if you thought Nixon did some things wrong, wait till you hear that your lovely president of the previous administration orchestrated all this. Stay tuned, bitches. Stay tuned. I just, I can't control myself. I don't want to go wild on it right now, but I'm just warning you. Get ready. Get ready. Now, segueing back on to current events, who could be more vain than Obama? Who could be more vain than Trump? They both had, they both have that vanity happening. But this is ultimate vanity, the son of God. In one of history's absolute greatest demonstrations of CEO, that's chief executive officer for you non-business people, millennials or union organizers, CEO Humility, SoftBank chief Mayasiyoshi Sun yesterday compared himself to Jesus Christ. In an article from the Financial Times, the Financial Times, facing accusations of poor performance over the Japanese conglomerate, posted a record $13 billion annual loss, Sun reportedly told investors that Jesus, too, had been misunderstood. Don't let me be misunderstood. And criticized. Those who recall the outrage John Lennon once sparked with the Jesus comparison may be amused to note that Sun also drew an analogy with the Beatles, saying they had not been popular when they first started. This guy is my new favorite CEO. Absolutely unbelievable. By the way, hat tip to New World Mutants keyboardist Mark Louis Lewis, who forwarded that info for me. And other things that are just shitting me this week, it's been reported that there's a number of academics that want climate change to be listed. <laughs> I'm serious as cancer. Climate change to be listed as the cause of death on more death certificates, saying that a lot of people are dying as a result of extreme climate change, and perhaps heat stroke might be a result of that. Get out of here. Get out of here. Unbelievable. And by the way, uh, a hat tip, a belated hat tip to Ohad Moreg. What kind of name is Ohad Moreg? It's an Israeli name. It's an Israeli name who sent me the article about Stan's Donuts, the, den- the demise of Stan's Donuts in Los Angeles. I'm absolutely shattered. And Ohad is a good friend. He is a member of my men's club, the Melbourne Savage Club. And um, looking at him before the lockdown, I'd say he's had more than a few donuts in his time. And I hope he's flattening the curve listening to this right now. Ohad, you're not going to fit in that new house unless you lose weight. Get on it and get on it now. A couple other shout outs to just people, exemplary people over the years that I think of in the middle of the night and I wake up and write down a note or something like that. Um, Sydney publicist, Roz Rains, a great journalist and one of the the true gossip queens with journalistic integrity, who I haven't seen in many years. I uh, was a friend from Sydney. And uh, Mark Hendricks, amazing guitar player, singer-songwriter with One World in Florida. We're going to have some of his music on an upcoming show. We might even talk to him on an upcoming show. And... And a hat tip to James Fox, the amazing actor, who told people to lighten the fuck up about Jimmy Fallon doing an impersonation of Chris Rock. No, it wasn't a blackface. 
insult. It was an impersonation. That's what a lot of comedians do. And people just need to lighten up. People need to lighten up. Put some love out there. Don't put so much hate out there. The only reason we come back with a bit of hate is that the hate's coming at us and we reflect it back. But this this is a love podcast. And I kind of want to put it out there, kind of a search and destroy. If anybody out there in the Boulder, Colorado area, where I went to university, knows where Joe Capps, Mark Frankel, or Bob Ween are, or the Bessie, Jim Bessie. I played poker with them on the hill in Boulder from 1971 to 76. I'm trying to find out if they're still alive. I have my reasons. So write me at the show if you know. And also a shout out to a wonderful company here, Luxury Escapes. Luxury Escapes does these packaged holidays to amazing places all around the world, Australia and international. Well, my wife and I were planning to go up to Port Douglas, where I've never been, up at the top of Queensland. And we bought a prepaid package, which is always risky. And of course, the woo flu hit and the airline and the package and everything, you know, went to shit. But those wonderful people at Luxury Escapes have given us a credit to use it till June of 2021, the flights and everything like that. And it wasn't a small amount of money, wasn't a ridiculous amount of money, but it all adds up. And that was just high integrity, fantastic customer service from them. We've used them once before and they are fantastic people. It's great to see positive, positive reinforcement in a dark time. And, you know, it's all about value. You know, a bottle of wine that costs $160 takes exactly the amount of time it takes to make a bottle of wine that costs $20. But it's the value that you get from that bottle of wine. What is it that you get from that $150, $160 wine that you don't get from $20? What is it you get from a $3,000 handbag that you don't get from a $20 handbag? Value, whether real or perceived, it is real to the people. And high integrity customer service every week. I try and call somebody out as a thank you. It just restores my faith in humanity. What have you done to be awesome lately? One of the things that I, I, I think is really important is just trying to be accurate with your time, especially if you're a creator or a contractor or a repairman or a writer, author, whether if you're a freelancer and you do something time-related, just be honest. If it's going to take you three days, say three days. Don't say two days and deliver it a day late. Just say, I'll have it in three days and make it happen. And if for some reason a catastrophe happens, like the woo flu, something force majeure, then just communicate and say, this happened and this is when it's going to happen. The key to success and life and friendship and relationships is communication. What a nice segue from the deep, dark recesses of Hollywood screenwriting, negativity, anti-Semitism, suicidal rock stars, money ripped off by accountants and lawyers and just bad people partying on dead people's money and Obamagate to this uplifting, sunny epilogue. But it's not an epilogue. We're not even there yet because what am I wearing? So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! 
Well, it's a balmy 17 degrees here today, which is about 64 to you North Americans and stuff like that. But it was chilly this morning, so I've gone a bit full trip to the Alps with a uh, Montclair polo, with Montclair track pants, and those staples, the Valentino camo shoes, but the white-on-white Valentino camo shoes today, which you'll see in the show notes. And last night, what did I drink? Well, single malt scotch. Uskaba single malt scotch. Very tasty. The official scotch of the White House during the Nixon administration just seemed to be the right thing to do with Obamagate going on. And um, it just felt right. Just a, a nice scotch on a cold night and on a chilly morning, dressing like I'm going to the ski slopes, which, regrettably, I'm not. And you would have thought I forgot that segment. I know you were just hanging out for it. Hanging out. So in closing, it's been a real up and down show of a lot of emotions. And some of you think, wow, he showed a lot of anger in there. He's supposed to be the nice guy. I am the nice guy. I went to the University of Colorado in 1971 to attend the School of Journalism. And I'm so glad that I did not become a journalist because right now, journalism is just in the toilet. There is such a lack of integrity among journalists, and that's what drives the anger, which comes back. We're not getting the story. We're getting a story that the journalists like to tell. And on that note, I'm still going to be nice. I'm not threatening any lives yet. Well, not that I'm going to be recorded doing because you know me. You know me. You know me. Even on this long show, I'll do a short show for you next week. You'll still know me. And to know me is to love me. Because it's nice to be important. But it's so much more important to be nice. No matter what. Have a fantastic week. See you. Wouldn't want to be you. Thanks.